Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivaglani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm really happy to be joined by one of my oldest friends, Dr. Atul Nakasi. Atul is a physician and policy advisor at the Los Angeles County Department of Health, which is the second largest public health system in the United States. He works with the underserved communities of Watson Compton at a government-run public clinic and advises on legislative matters related to Medicaid and health coverage for low-income and disabled populations. As a backstory, almost a decade ago, Atul and I were going to be roommates at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and had everything lined up until I decided to take a gap year before going to Hopkins Med, which worked out because this is how I wound up meeting Ryan, my co-founder of Osmosis, and Atul was one of the early backers and supporters of Osmosis, even at Hopkins Med. So Atul, super proud of what you've done in the intervening years and very happy to have you on Raise Line. Thank you, Shiv. It's been a beautiful journey for both of us since those early pre-orientation days at Hopkins Med and uh, looking forward to catching up today. So going back to Hopkins Med, I remember one of the enterprising things you did was you started this uh, Distinguished Speaker Series. And uh, you know how sometimes people who go to Coachella, they're like, oh, I knew this band before they were cool. I feel like you've been the epitome of that in so many ways, because one of the first lecturers you brought was Dr. Anthony Fauci, who uh, was obviously very famous even back then. But clearly this year has, has skyrocketed him to a whole new level of fame and influence. Can you tell us a bit more about uh, how you identified him back then and what the process was like and how he is as a person? Yeah, that's a great question, Shiv. And, you know, it's so curious because Anthony Fauci had been so well known in the worlds of infectious disease and medicine. But you're completely right. Now he's essentially like a household name um, because of his leadership role and his brilliant scientific mind in this pandemic that we're fighting against. And so it's very curious back then much of the medicine world was already very much in admiration of Dr. Fauci. And so he had been a recommendation for our committee, our speaker student series committee to invite. And we're like, you know, why not? Why not invite Dr. Fauci? He's in neighboring DC, NIH, Bethesda area, an hour from Hopkins. And so we did, and we were very honored for him to accept the invitation. And, you know, Shiv, it's so interesting because what Fauci was saying back then is essentially the same exact song he is saying now, that this world is at high risk of a potential pandemic and that there are so many infectious emerging diseases across the world. In fact, back then, already H1N1 had happened in 2009 and, and SARS original had happened, you know, 2000 to 2003, around that time frame. And so when we had invited him in 2011, the world already had a few pandemics or emerging diseases of pandemic potential that were happening. So it was really fascinating to hear from his perspective then, but he's really been singing the same song and now his message is being amplified. And he is a, such a humble, soft-spoken, brilliant scientist. And those traits are the same we're seeing nowadays. Well, on that, on that topic of uh, knowing someone back then before they were as famous, uh, I definitely know you've become a lot more well-known in the space. I've been on CNBC or MSNBC and other places. Let's zoom back even a couple of years before we met you at Hopkins. I think there was a Wall Street Journal article about you calling you the campus kingmaker because you had revived the Iowa College Democrats and in time for the 2008 election season had basically become a, the kingmaker, the campus kingmaker, where Obama's team, Biden's team, Clinton's team were all trying to court you and, and your endorsement as the head of the Iowa College Democrats. 
what are some of the secrets behind turning out the vote, especially the youth vote? And, and how do you think you and, and others in the healthcare professional fields can motivate others to go and vote? That's a great question. And you know, Shiv, I'll be honest, and you know this as well as I do, doctors have traditionally seen their role within patient care, within the clinical examination room, within the patient care settings or the hospitals. But there's been a change in that mood amongst even physicians, especially young physicians in this last decade of time where we see our role more about engagement, not only in the clinical examination room, but also the halls of Congress to city hall. And I think that's been very inspiring to see amongst your and my generation of physicians and trainees and those in healthcare at large. So I'm hopeful that doctors are becoming more comfortable and authentic in sharing their stories, sharing their first and experiences and being advocates for patients, not only in the clinical examination room like I am here today, but also taking those stories and struggles of our patients and giving them voice and life to the public. I think that's a really, really important role for doctors to become comfortable with and also usher in. And I think our generation is more so than older generations of doctors. But I will say it's not all hopeful. There's a new study in in JAMA Internal Medicine. It just came out last week by a colleague of mine, and it looked at voter turnout rates of doctors. Guess how doctors compare to the general public? Much lower. Yeah, much lower, Shiv. You, You got 14 percentage points lower, 14 percentage points only. 37% of doctors turned out to vote in elections over the last decade. In fact, that meant about two out of three doctors did not vote. So I think there's still gaps to bridge in a sense that we need to realize there's so much more work we can do in the larger arena of public policy and in government. And to be honest, Shiv, we're the messenger now more than ever. We're in the midst of a pandemic. This is a once in a century type of impact on the health and well-being of a country and the world. If there has ever been a time for doctors to be messengers in the public arena, it's now. And I hope we can continue that message. And and you certainly have been getting the message out there. I know I've seen your posts on Facebook and and interviews. I even believe California's governor, Gavin Newsom, also saw that and did a nice shout out to the work you were doing in patient care and, and advocacy. Can you talk a bit about your own experience as a physician in LA, uh, one of the most affected regions of the country, from, say, the beginning of this year, as you started noticing COVID was going to be a bigger deal, through the first, second, and now third peak? I'd love to hear about your personal experience treating patients. Totally. This is a great question, Shiv. And I'll give you a couple stories here. So one is just a little background on our health system. So the LA County Department of Health Services, we're the second largest public health municipal-based health system in the United States of America. We have four hospitals, 26 clinics, take care of 600,000 unique patients. And Shiv, what is unique particularly about our health system is we take care of the underserved. People who have nothing, people who come from nothing, people who feel they can't afford any care but deserve all of it. And those are our patients. In fact, in this clinic, actually 80% of my patients that sit in this room right across from me, just like you and I are talking, make under $18,000 a year. And they live on that in Los Angeles, one of the most expensive cities to live in. So if we can't give them healthcare here, they often can't get healthcare anywhere. You know, we are the safety net system. We define what it means to have healthcare as a human right. We've seen those challenges for the whole pandemic. Um, I just had, going to the personal side of it, I just had a patient last week, Shiv. She was a mother. She had a, a sixth grader. She was homeless. The mother was homeless and asking for motel voucher. She was begging me last week for my social worker to help her in any way possible to give her a motel voucher so she'd actually have a roof under her head 
She was living in her car shift and her sixth grade daughter was going on her laptop with virtual school in the car. That was her classroom. The challenges she faced, she was so vulnerable with me. She said, we can't even find a place to charge her daughter's laptop. She was learning in the midst of a pandemic in a vehicle as her classroom with the mother homeless trying to scrape by and just get by. And the mother would work a night shift. The daughter would be with the family member. The daughter would come back in the morning with the mother in the car and try to learn. That happened five days ago, Shiv. And so this pandemic, going to the personal side of it, of what I'm seeing, this pandemic has simply exposed pre-existing health inequities. And it's made raw. It's exposed and made raw the vulnerabilities of the population, especially those who are underserved, low-income, and vulnerable that we take care of. And so I'm really, really worried about that, the disparities we're seeing, and how they're going to be aggravated amongst our population here. So that was one story, but we've seen a lot of the ramifications in terms of housing insecurity, food insecurity. I had another mother. She was a single mother of two children, and she lost her job as so many Americans lost their job. She didn't have income coming in, couldn't pay her own utility bill. They shut down the electricity of her house. She didn't have any hot water in her house. She didn't have any electricity in her house. She was raising two children in this house, and she couldn't even put food on the table. She was crying to me on the phone and telling me, Dr. Nakasi, I can't even get by. She was getting panic attacks going to the hospital. She had to beg the church for food just to feed her two children. And I'll never forget that story. And so what we've seen is a drastic ripple effect of the pandemic's consequences. And I think we have a lot of rethinking to do of how to really serve so many of the populations we serve here in LA. And, and this pandemic has really exposed them raw. Those are some heartbreaking stories. I can't imagine having to deal with what your patients are, are dealing with. Definitely, I, I couldn't agree more that there are these inequities that have been exacerbated by the pandemic. Uh, the internet access one is something that's come up a number of times on this podcast as well. You know, we are headed into flu season in a big way. And I know you've been vocal about the twindemic, the combination of COVID and flu. What are you doing to prepare and what is LA doing to prepare for this upcoming pandemic? And then also, what are your thoughts on vaccinations, both flu vaccines as well as when a COVID vaccine may be ready? We are doing everything in our human power here to get everyone the flu shot. I, I tried to go eight for eight this morning with all my patients. <laughs> and so we are doing our best. We are very worried about a twindemic. I'll present two pieces of data. You know, this is going to be the first kind of full winter where we're seeing both COVID and the flu converge. So we are very, very worried about that. And Shiv, many people may not realize this, but the flu causes 40 million infections every year. And about 500,000 of them end up being hospitalizations. And so that's our biggest concern here with this twindemic. Already, Shiv, we're in this third wave. Look at Utah. Certain cities in Utah have been running out of hospitals in North Dakota, Ohio, even in my own home state of Iowa, we're at an all-time record of hospitalizations. That is just with COVID now, with this third surge. Now add on top 500,000 hospitalized flu patients. That is what we're really, really afraid of. They're going to need the same ventilators, the same oxygen, the same doctor and nursing staff, the same ICU beds that these COVID patients are. So we are very, very worried. The healthcare system was not built to be able to provide all the resources for the twindemic potential. Now, I will say the good side, largely because all of our measures in terms of social distancing and masking, perhaps flu rates will actually be quite low and lower than usual. Nonetheless, what I've been telling most of my patients is why take the chance? Why even take the chance of a twindemic potential if we have a one simple solution, which is to get the flu shot? So we're a very, very big advocates here, the flu shot. 
We are seeing rates in LA that are below the third surge pandemic level right now. We kind of had our surge in June and July, but much of the country is surging to the point the daily cases are higher than they've ever been in the United States right now. So we'll see, there might be a delay and maybe LA is going to be heading towards that surge as well. We're watching very cautiously. We do have a few dashboards we're tracking every day. So we know the number of ICU beds available in our county hospital system. We know the number of hospitalized COVID patients, both in our hospitals in LA County and also across the state. We also know the number of ventilators available and we're keeping a live dynamic dashboard of all our PPE needs. So we are staying up. Our teams here on LA County on the ground are staying up on the data day to day to day on all the essential needs we have. And then in terms of COVID vaccine, I think the biggest challenge will be, Shiv, is it going to be one shot or is it going to be two? Most of the frontrunner candidates, as you may know, are actually two shots. And so how do you get 300 million people vaccinated and then 30 days later, you bring them back and give them another shot, right? So the logistics of that are going to be a bit complex. And then ultimately, who's going to get it first? So all the states have been requested to develop vaccine distribution plans. And there seems to be an emphasis on healthcare workers and also those who are more vulnerable, like the elderly. So who's going to kind of get it first? How many shots is it going to be? And how do we get it distributed to every corner of the country? It's not easy to produce 300 million product, 300 million needles, 300 million syringes, and then double that if you need a second shot. So there are still some big, big concerns about how to get it out. That is sobering for sure. And something that certainly our chief medical officer, Dr. Rishi Desai, who you know is pediatric infectious disease attending, has commented on as well. Going into 2021 and this major logistical challenge that lies ahead of us, it's amazing how physicians like yourself have stayed on the battles and the front lines for the past six to nine months treating COVID patients and other patients who have totally non-related conditions how have you personally and how do you think we as a society should treat healthcare professionals so that we can help them avoid burning out in this time that we need them so much? Yeah, Shiv, that's a great question. And I'll be honest, like there was even a point in this pandemic where I was very close to burning out. I mean, I was feeling it. I was feeling the anxiety, the fatigue, the insomnia and the stress. And this was back towards April or May when Governor Newsom resurrected our LA surge hospital at the very beginning, the first wave, when we weren't sure which direction LA was going. And, you know, it's a tough feeling when you go to bed and you get like that little soreness in your throat and you're thinking to yourself, am I going to wake up with COVID? There were multiple nights where I had that little kind of malaise and I was thinking like, is this going to be me now at the beginning of all this uncertainty? And that was just my own stress individually, let alone if I were to be living with, with my parents, for example, or back in Iowa, the stress of family members of thinking I might infect family members as being a frontline worker or colleagues or friends of mine, a significant other. And so the stress is both on the healthcare workers and then on their family members. And then Shiv, on top of that, the loneliness, the anxiety, the depression, there was data from Wuhan that surveyed their healthcare personnel, their front lines, and the rates were like double to triple the levels of depression and anxiety, not only for healthcare workers, but also for everyone in general, like life is just not the way it used to be, right? And so I, I think it's a tough challenge. I think healthcare systems are going to really have to think about how do we build up the workforce and keep them motivated and also rejuvenated. And, you know, in LA County, we have various wellness programs that have helped. But to be honest, Shiv, I think this speaks to like our need, the United States need to have a robust public health workforce. At the end of the day, there's only so many patients and admissions and discharges and transfers that one human being can do no matter where you are, one doctor, one, one nurse. And so we like to think of ourselves sometimes as superhuman, but we're also so really just human 
um, just like everyone else. And I think that's an important acknowledgement to just the limitations of being a frontline worker. So I hope this is kind of an awakening to build a robust public health workforce, make sure we have enough doctors, make sure we have enough nurses, make sure we have enough epidemiologists and infectious disease doctors so that we're prepared when we're overwhelmed and it doesn't just fall to a small group of few. Yeah, I mean, we couldn't agree more. And that's the whole reason we call this podcast Raise the Line is how do we improve healthcare capacity? You know, our contribution to that is, is online health education, not only to the future health professionals, medical, nursing, PA students and professionals, but also we're launching our you know nursing assistant program and trying to get end-to-end training for other healthcare providers. And then most interestingly, I think too, with patients, right? Because the more they're actually educated and following guidelines and listening to accurate health information, the less stress you'll have as a physician, right? The less cases will come to you because more people will socially distance and wear their masks. And eventually when the COVID vaccine is available, they'll, they'll take it and we'll hopefully get some level of herd immunity going on too. Exactly. And I think, Ship, you made a brilliant point. And I think that's why the work you're doing is remarkable and the work Osmosis and your team is because so much of it is public communication also, both to people in the healthcare field, but also to the public. I mean, Ship, I'll be honest, I have doctors asking me and worried about what's going on to me who aren't in necessarily internal medicine or infectious disease or as hospice or ICU doctors, right? Like I'm seeing it on the front lines as an internal medicine doctor and as a hospitalist with COVID pneumonia patients, but a lot of doctors also lost businesses. A lot of doctors didn't have enough PPE, a lot of small practice doctors, or they're in fields that don't have direct exposure necessarily to COVID patients. So I've been getting inquiries from doctors and healthcare professionals and patients. And I think you all play a very unique role because doctors have not always been traditionally in the public sphere as advocate and policy communicators. We've much been within the trenches, which is where we are needed right now. But I think the work you're doing to really raise awareness on that is so critical. And it does take a lot of anxiety off of us. We have, I'll give one quick example. We have a nurse line here um, that runs every morning, essentially eight to five. And any patient can call us within our health system and ask any questions. We get all the questions about COVID coming through that line. And when a nurse can answer, they'll buzz us in and, and I'll often talk to the patient. And the amount of anxiety, even from amount of disinformation or lack of accurate information is stunning. You know, I've had patients ask me if I, doc, I had a young gentleman in my community ask me, doc, if I go out in the sun, am I going to be okay? Is just sunlight going to take care of this, you know, and, and take care of this virus? And that's all I need to do. Or about hydroxychloroquine, I've gotten a lot of questions, especially early on, as we know, that's been, you know, none of the studies have panned out now here, none of the major RCTs around hydroxychloroquine. But all these questions were coming to us. So I think the more we can do to better educate accurately and with reliable information, keep up the good work, man. We need you. Osmosis is in this fight just as much as we are, man. Thanks, Atul. That, that means a lot. Um, I know we're coming up on time, but the two last questions I had, uh, the first one is, um, you know, what are some of the lasting changes you think COVID will have on our healthcare system? Hopefully, fast forward a couple of years and there's no COVID-20 or COVID-21, God forbid. What are some of the changes you'd like to see and you think will happen to the healthcare system as a result? I hope this will produce a trajectory that will allow healthcare to be universally accessed and defined as a human right. If anything, this pandemic has shown the need for that. I'll give a quick quick example. I was just talking, I'm working with an intern on combating COVID misinformation. And he made a, a point to me. He said, Dr. Nakasi, you're from Iowa, born and raised amongst cows and cornfields. I'm from China. And he's now a student here at Pepperdine. 
and we were on a Zoom call together and he said, you're from Iowa and I'm from China and here we're in Los Angeles on a Zoom call together talking about COVID. And his point was well taken. This pandemic has transcended all boundaries, all races, all socioeconomic status of individuals and cultures and creed and people on every part of this globe. And so it just shows that we're all in this together. This is, we're the, the fabric of humanity together, that an individual in Wuhan, where we know this pandemic had started initially, has now went to every corner of this country and of this world and globe and affecting us drastically, economically, psychologically in our health and well-being. And so I think what it shows is that we need a more robust healthcare system that takes care of everyone and anyone. And, and we're especially seeing that in LA. The, the last example I'll give of that is, Shiv, when I first came to LA County here after I finished my training days at UCLA, at UCLA, it's very interesting. My zip code there was 90095 in the Westwood at UCLA area where I trained for residency. And you know what hit me really at home when I first came here two years ago in the Watts Compton area? I realized within the first few months, the zip code was actually the exact same with one difference. Instead of 90095, it was 90059. And that one difference shift going from 95 to 59 is 10 years of life expectancy between West Los Angeles and Compton Watts, 10 years of life expectancy. And so I often tell my residents and my students and my clinicians here, what we're doing here is trying to fight for the five niners, the people who were put in circumstances and situations that they often had no control over. And because of that have drastically different life outcomes and health outcomes. And so I think this pandemic has shown how real those inequities are. And my hope is, that we double down on the importance of providing healthcare as a universal right. And a simple step to that has been even the federal government now said they're going to offer the COVID vaccine for free at, at no cost and no out-of-pocket cost. Right? Like that's an initial step where we're saying this is a human right. Everyone deserves this vaccine. Everyone deserves this vaccine. But why stop there? Everyone deserves a primary care doctor. Everyone deserves affordable health care. Everyone deserves access to the care they need at the right time, at the right place. Everyone deserves a support system. Everyone deserves a social worker who can help them with with homelessness and food insecurity. And so this is just the beginning in my way um, of, of where we need to go and, and the direction that I hope comes out of this as a silver lining. That's a, that's a very, very powerful message, especially the zip code example. My last question for you, Atul, is that, you know, since you interact with so many residents and you train so many people, what advice would you give to our audience of current and future healthcare professionals about meeting the challenges of this COVID moment and beyond? Yeah, we need you. We need you, we need all of you. And here's my stethoscope to the next generation. Literally, literally, we need public health officials. Shiv, look at Orange County, look at California, look at counties across the country. Public health officials have resigned under death threats, under threats to their own health and well-being. We need public health officials, epidemiologists, infectious disease specialists, uh, people with MPHs and MPAs and MPPs. We need doctors, we need nurses, phlebotomists, techs. We need everyone. And so I think the message, the takeaway here, if anything, has been we need to double down on what it means to have a robust and, and durable healthcare workforce. And we need brilliant people. You know, there's always eras 
where people get pushed into different directions. You know, you and I may remember, you know, in our younger days, so many of our colleagues and friends were going to Wall Street, right? There was the exodus towards New York and the finance and the hedge funds in the VC world. And then we saw an era where it was in tech to Silicon Valley and the Facebooks and the Googles, and now the Ubers and the Lyfts of the world, like the tech companies. I hope this is that era. I hope the 2020s is defined by the push and the need to direct the best and brilliant human talent that this country has into healthcare. To everyone out there, the message would be take this moment and make something of it because we need you. We need you now, but we're going to need you for years to come. Super powerful take home message. Atul, I mean, who could have predicted nine years ago uh, after meeting at Hopkins that you'd be on the front lines, literally in LA, treating COVID patients and being a, a voice of reason and inspiration to so many healthcare professionals and, and patients. So really appreciate you taking the time and uh, so proud of what you've done. Uh, really wishing you the best as we go in to this next cycle. Thank you, Shiv. It's always a pleasure catching up and, and chatting with you ever since those early days. I tried to recruit you to be my roommate at Hopkins Med. So I know, I know I wasn't successful, but a beautiful, beautiful friendship came out of it over the last decade. Likewise, Atul. Well, with that, I'm Shiv Gwani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line since we're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.